An estimated 70 million U.S. citizens have criminal records, and African Americans and Latinos are incarcerated at far higher rates than whites. Studies have increasingly documented negative health outcomes among formerly incarcerated populations, suggesting that hyperincarceration may cause health disparities. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with George Carandinos, an MD-PhD candidate in social anthropology at Harvard University. As part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series, Mr. Carandinos has co-authored a perspective article about hyperincarceration as a form of structural violence. Mr. Carandinos, you write in your article that the United States imprisons far greater numbers of people and a higher proportion of its population than any other country in the world, and that U.S. criminal justice policies disproportionately target the poor and particular racial and ethnic minorities. So can you tell us a bit about the history of hyperincarceration in the United States? That's right. It's rather incredible. The United States has about 5% of the world's population and 21% of the world's prisoners. This hasn't always been the case. Incarceration really exploded in the United States following the declaration of the war on drugs in 1971 by Richard Nixon, and especially during the acceleration of the war on drugs in the 1980s. And so beginning in the 1980s, there has been a 450% increase in the U.S. prison population, which now stands over 2 million individuals in the state and federal systems, including another 4.75 million individuals on probation or parole under supervision community. So to understand these rather extraordinary figures and this trend of the explosive incarceration over the last 30, 40 years, we have to understand the roots of incarceration both within the American historical system of slavery, which set the initial context for the later explosion in incarceration, and then what happened during the early stages of the war on drugs and its transformation. So immediately post-slavery, the South especially initiated a convict leasing system of essentially a form of racial social control to reincarcerate recently freed slaves. And this was an extremely lucrative system for many of the states that implemented the system. Prisons also emerged as a form of social control in the North as many African-Americans began migrating to the North and encountered a situation of extreme poverty and exclusion from jobs, which has persisted in time in the urban inner city, like in the Philadelphia neighborhood in which our research was conducted. So starting in 1971 with the declaration of the war on drugs by Richard Nixon, there was a increased criminalization of drug use that affected particularly the African-American and Latino population who were subject to much higher rates of policing um, and faced much stricter prosecution and stiffer sentences for drug crimes and were also driven into participation in the drug trade by the deteriorating conditions of the U.S. economy. So you talk in your article about a formerly incarcerated man who has chronic back pain, diabetes, hypertension, and asthma. What factors contribute to that kind of poor health among people who've been incarcerated? So Mr. M, as we call him in the article, actually faces a relatively remarkable set of risks that began in his youth and related to his growing up in the neighborhood that the fieldwork took place in North Philadelphia. And what's most remarkable about Mr. M is that as a young man engaged in the illicit drug trade, he survived extremely high levels of violence only to be incarcerated eventually, survive incarceration and leave the prison and to 
then subsequently succumb to chronic illness, the slow violence of health disparities rather than the more visible form of violence that we're all accustomed to thinking of, such as direct violence, shootings, and stabbings. And so what we find particularly tragic about his situation, which is not unlike many of our other neighbor situations, is that they were able to survive the tumultuous violence of the inner city streets only to succumb to chronic illness that is preventable and so this is precisely what we see with the population who's exiting the prison system, who faces a remarkably elevated risk for all sorts of poor health outcomes. And the detrimental health and social effects are significant, both for the formerly incarcerated individuals like Mr. M, as well as their families in communities. And one of the articles that we cite has the remarkable finding that in combination, deindustrialization, which I previously spoke about, combined with incarceration, has subtracted roughly 2.5 years from the lifespan of the poor over the period of time from 2001-2014, which virtually explains the entire increase in the disparity between the top and bottom in income quartiles since 2001 in terms of life expectancy. And so the period of time immediately post-release is especially dangerous for individuals. And in fact, in the first two weeks after release, the risk of death of newly released individuals is 12 times the base population and is 120 times greater specifically regarding the risk of overdose death. If you look again at Mr. M, one of the reasons that he was uninsured and so couldn't financially cope with his health conditions is that his state had initially declined to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So to flip that, has Medicaid expansion elsewhere had a measurable effect on access to care for people who've been incarcerated? Absolutely. The Medicaid expansion has had a huge direct impact on the formerly incarcerated by expanding the eligibility criteria. In fact, individuals leaving prison may face uninsurance rates up to 80% prior to expansion. And Medicaid expansion transformed this entirely. And for example, in Illinois, an estimated 95% of those now released from the Department of Corrections are eligible for Medicaid when in the past almost none of them were. And so this is a radical change that represents a dramatic improvement of healthcare access for the formerly incarcerated. This was obviously not the case when Mr. M was released from prison in the early 2000s. And in fact, he suffered without insurance for over a decade because Medicaid didn't expand in Pennsylvania until a year after the ACA came into effect. And as we mentioned in the article, that alone accounts for a lot of the health problems that Mr. M faced. And so now, despite the fact that the Medicaid expansion has really improved access for formerly incarcerated individuals, there are still outstanding issues. For example, 14 states still have not adopted the expansion. Also, states may elect to suspend Medicaid once individuals are incarcerated or can terminate Medicaid while they're incarcerated, which creates many obstacles to the reapplication and reinstitution of Medicaid upon release. And currently, 34 states either terminate or provide time limits for Medicaid suspension for those who are incarcerated. And then there's also the issue of making sure that Medicaid is back into effect or that individuals who are not yet on Medicaid are enrolled for Medicaid on the way out of prison. But the ACA and especially Medicaid expansion has completely transformed the type of healthcare access that formerly incarcerated individuals may receive post-incarceration. So you also talk at that moment in your article about welcoming systems that can provide a bridge to community care after people come out of incarceration. How do those programs work and how common are they around the country? These systems acknowledge the fact that even if there is formal access 
to healthcare that there may be many additional barriers preventing people from accessing healthcare effectively or in some cases at all. And so an article exploring one of the implementations of what are called transition clinics, which help people transition post-incarceration into community care. This article notes that even though 80% of released individuals have chronic medical conditions of one kind or another, only 15 to 25% of individuals report visiting a physician outside of the emergency department in the first year post-release. And so what transition clinics aim to do is form relationships with people who are coming out of prison, in some cases, initiate contact prior to release to participate in the discharge planning process so that once an individual is released, they have an appointment, they have somewhere to go, they have the beginning of a relationship with a clinic and set of providers who have experience caring for the formerly incarcerated, who are sensitive to the issues faced by the formerly incarcerated, and who could provide both good care and sensitive care as well as plug in these individuals into a broader set of social services that are essential for those who are coming out of prison because somebody is leaving after a period of incarceration, they are faced with a tremendous set of competing priorities related to reintegration, finding housing, securing employment, reestablishing social ties, family ties that have been severed in some cases or have at least been strained severely. And The priority of taking care of one's chronic illnesses or other health problems can often fall below these other much more pressing issues without the additional help. And those systems are one way of bridging that particularly dangerous time for formerly incarcerated individuals. So we've just seen a criminal justice reform bill. Do you expect that to affect hyperincarceration, the health of people who've been imprisoned? This bill, the First Steps Act, is, I think, very powerful symbolically and is practically important for a small number of people, but it in of itself is not a transformational bill in its effect, primarily because it addresses the federal prison system, while 87% of those who are incarcerated in the United States are actually held in state facilities rather than in federal facilities. So the number of people who are going to be affected by this is not that great. And in fact, in some ways, this is the federal system catching up with much more exciting and ambitious reform that is occurring unevenly at the state level across the country. So I think it's an important bill because it moves things in the right direction in the federal system, which despite being a smaller system, still incarcerates over 100,000 people itself, and also brings the conversation of prison reform directly into the middle of public discussion. But there's still a lot left to do, and a lot of that will be done on the local level, which prison reform advocates recognize and continue to push at that level. So finally, how can physicians most effectively intervene, both in caring for individual patients who've been incarcerated and in broader efforts to address this hyperincarceration and access to care for people who've been in prison? I think there is a great amount that physicians can do, and some of this relates to what physicians can do in their clinic rooms, and a lot of it has to do with physicians recognizing the social structural forces that impinge on the lives of their patients in a way that transcends the clinic but that is still within the realm of a physician's power to intervene. And so some of the things that we discuss in our article is precisely how physicians might conceive of themselves as potentially powerful agents to address the issue of hyperincarceration. In the most immediate clinical setting, this can relate to being sensitive to histories of incarceration, 
among their patients and the additional obstacles that such a history may present, especially in regards to employment and connecting such patients with a broader set of social services, which requires that physicians work collaboratively in an interdisciplinary way. But beyond the clinic, physicians can recognize how powerful a voice they have within their institutions, which as we note in our article, these healthcare institutions that physicians are connected to often are the largest employers in many states and represent a huge chunk of the U.S. economic system. And so one of the initiatives that we discuss acknowledges precisely this fact, and it is the job training program at the John Hopkins Health System. And what Hopkins has done is they've partnered directly with reentry program services in the community so that individuals coming out of prison can receive job training with job placement at the Hopkins hospital system. And they've successfully trained and placed over 500 individuals with histories of incarceration. And this is completely transformative for individuals, both on a personal and social level, but also on a health level, because one of the biggest issues that the formerly incarcerated face are the dramatic restriction in their employment opportunities. And for them to be excluded from the healthcare sector because of either local laws or institutional policy or other barriers to securing employment in the healthcare system represents a huge exclusion from the, one of the fastest growing uh, sectors of the U.S. economy. So that's a particularly exciting initiative and one that physicians and healthcare systems across the country can replicate and can receive help from Hopkins and from the foundations that have helped to replicate the Hopkins initiative in a set of additional cities. And that could be a very powerful way for physicians to leverage their power within healthcare institutions and also to call for the implementation of services that resemble the transitions clinic or the establishment of a transitions clinic in their neighborhood, which is something that physicians can take leadership over and work collaboratively with to establish these sorts of clinics. Thank you, Mr. Carandinos.